This is episode 16 of Free as in Freedom for Tuesday, August 16th, 2011. Hi, I'm Karen Sandler. And I'm Bradley Kuhn. This is Free as in Freedom, episode 16 on the 16th. And that is two different numbers, so what are you saying? They're written the same. But no, they aren't. One of them is hexadecimal. They base both 16. are 16 and 16. And you read them differently because they have different meaning. But there's a real synchronicity there. They're different numbers, though. Uh, this is not I, I don't know what to say. We can't take this anywhere. <laughs> this is. It would be episode if it was. It was on the. It was one zero, because that's sixteen. In hex. I don't have anything to say to you. <laughs> I understand. I mean, we we. Why deny me my fun? Okay. Well, but and and it's birthday hack anyway, because there's only thirty days in a month. So the odds that in a given month the number is going to be the same. I say again. <laughs> As you're we, no fun <laughs> that is true so as we uh discussed at last episode there will be uh a number of uh, uh recordings of oscon talks in and, our next few shows and this is the first of those and this one is uh is a talk a session led by me and aaron williamson of the software freedom law center who uh has been on this and has been on Free as in Freedom and the Software Freedom Law Show so often that he is not correctly called a guest. <laughs> um, so um, that's pretty exciting. You're looking as if you totally disagree with me. No, I don't disagree with you. I was trying okay. to. I was trying to figure out. Actually, I was wondering if anybody was going to go through the slides and put the time indices on them. Probably not. I would guess no one will actually do that. I but don't we will put the slides. Think on them. so. But this particular talk. Is, the slides are a lot less critical because what the format that we chose was a sort of an FAQ format. We just took a lot of the questions that we're asked, you know, as lawyers in the free and open source software world, you know, just the basic introductory questions. We decided we would just do, you know, question after question and see how far we got. We actually didn't get nearly as far as we meant to. We started, and you'll hear me refer to getting to other topics later in the talk that we actually never got to. Um, and maybe maybe it's worth following up with a, 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 a another thing. Maybe I can convince Aaron to do like a, a show where we get to some of the questions that we didn't get to um, in the talk because we actually never really made it to patent and we never made it to trademarks and we never made it to nonprofits organization. But it's a lot of, you know, introductory legal stuff is a lot to get to. Uh, but I think that we made a good choice because it turned out to be a good conversation and discussion. And, uh, and, you know, I, I think it gave an opportunity for people to, I mean, the truth is that, that the stuff we covered is the first, is the first stuff you would ask. Um, so I, I hope that's helpful. Yeah. And I think this hopefully will be an oddcast we can point to in the future for folks who want to know the very basics. They can go back and listen to this particular show and pick up those basics. There might be some amount of frustration that you can't hear anything from the audience. Uh, the fortunate thing is the sound guy at the conference let me plug into his board and I was able to record things, the, the audio from Karen and Aaron from their actual microphones they were wearing instead of having a, a secondary mic uh, set up. The downside to that is there's absolutely no way you can hear the questions. We're going to probably ask uh, Method Dan, uh, our producer, to edit those out. And well, I'm not sure. But, well, we'll see. We'll see. Yeah. I, I think that I listened to the audio on the plane uh, back from the conference, and oh. they, they were pretty inaudible. I mean, basically inaudible. Oh, I see. Um, but on the other side, uh, we can cut those out. And you all didn't answer really simple, like simply say no and yes. Uh, you were engaged uh, and and speaking to the issues. So I, mean, I don't think the, you questions need to hear the questions were really in context, and they were follow up on the thing that we had said. So hopefully, it'll still flow. Yeah, I think it'll be okay, and and the slides will be there online, which was just the the question. Questions uh, that, that that you asked yourselves uh, uh, as part of the talk. Yeah, there was another talk. I think it was. Uh, uh, I forget. Uh, oh, it was it was Ben and Fitz. They did a a, a, a talk also at OSCON where they asked questions. Where it was in a, sort of an FAQ format, but they uh, had it as like a dial-in radio show. Yeah, and they had recorded audio from the questions. Yeah, which I thought was a cute way of doing it. Um, ours wasn't nearly as exciting as that, but now we have sort of like the meta 
aspect of now we made her talk into an actual radio show. <laughs> That's so, true. That's true. <laughs> so maybe we went up them. We didn't wear white lab coats, though. So, uh, so I also live dented, uh, the talk and I'll link to that Identica thread in the show notes. If folks would like to, uh, would like to see what I was saying about the talk and quoting from them. Although if you hear the talk, it probably will have everything I had in that, except for my snarky comments that I added, uh, uh, to the extent to which I did. Karen's worrying because she hasn't read the snarky comments. I have not. I don't think I had a snarky but comments. But anyway, I hope you guys enjoy it and hope you find it helpful. So, um, yeah, we decided to format this talk as, as an FAQ, a sort of dialogue with ourselves, um, just posing a bunch of questions that we've gotten repeatedly uh, over the course of our time representing free and open source software developers, and then answering them in a way that gives you some background on the underlying legal issues and whatever. But um, As you, know, you may imagine, we get the same questions over and over and over and over again. Yes, we do. But we sometimes get new questions. And if you have a question that we're not asking ourselves, um, feel free to raise it. You know, anytime mm -hmm. we're, you know, we reserve the right to say that that's a question that really doesn't apply to everybody. So talk to us afterward. And I should point out now that I'm not only a lawyer, but I'm also a client. Yes, that's right. <laughs> uh, Karen recently um, moved on from her role as general counsel at Software Freedom Law Center to executive director at the GNOME Foundation. Um, and so we all congratulate her. Oh. <laughs> uh, she also won an open source award. I, so. <laughs> I really. Um, so, uh, and I mentioned this because it actually changes the way that I think about some of these questions going and functioning sort of not as a lawyer in my primary role. I'm still pro bono counsel at SFLC though, so I'm still getting all of this stuff and um, I still want to help make sure that there's clarity, but that's why we have both logos. Yes, two logos. Yes. Um, okay. So, so our first question. Yes, without further ado. We don't have like a radio show or anything going on. but So this feels like sort of an abrupt way to begin, but um, we're not going to like do a walkthrough here. We're just going to ask some questions and answer them, and hopefully you'll get a general idea of, of some legal issues, and if we're confusing you, ask questions, please. This is one of the, um, the things that we get that are confusing to everyone, not just in software. This is something that comes up in a free culture context and in any kind of arts context. Uh, people seem to think that they need notices on what they've created in order to get copyright. But under the US copyright laws, you get copyright basically by creating the work. So um, under the copyright law, it's, there's, they call it uh, fixing the work in a tangible medium. But all that really means is that from the moment you write your code, you have copyright in it. Yes. And uh, yeah, so you know, there used to be a time under US law when, when all of these formalities were required in order to get a copyright. You had to, like after you, made, after you wrote, back then you couldn't write computer programs, but let's say you could. After you wrote your program, um, you not only had to put a copyright notice on all of the on all of the copies you distributed, but you also had to register your copyright with the Copyright Office, um, and you also had to redo that registration. Um, but now we love copyright so much in this country that uh, we make it as easy as possible to get, and we make it as hard as possible for it to ever expire. Um, thank you, Walt Disney. So, um, so formalities like copyright notices are not necessary on your code. Um, however, there are good reasons to include them. They are really helpful because it tells people that you have copyrights in something and it lets them know what they have permission to do or not do. So the traditional all rights reserved basically tells you you can't do anything with this except what I tell you you can specifically. Um, and in the free software context, it's that much more critical because it basically is a place where you can say, I have copyright and here's the license terms under which you can use it. So yep. notices become really important. You're not required under copyright law to use them to have copyright, but the whole world of free and open source software and how we share code would really probably fall apart if there weren't an easy way to tell people about it. Yes, and another important thing to note about copyright notices is that almost all free and open source software licenses require you to preserve other people's notices in the code. So if you go and change somebody else's code and rip out their copyright notices, you are probably infringing their copyright, so, so don't do it. Also, it's impolite. Yeah, for, well, we'll get to permissive licensing. Yes. So let's ask ourselves another question, shall we? Aaron, what's the difference between free software and open source? Is there a legal distinction? Uh, well, Karen, <laughs> uh, I'll jump to the end and say, no, there's not a legal distinction. But since you uh, asked this question to be put in, I think you should uh, start us off. 
I did. I, I wanted this question to be put in because this is something that people come to me all the time and have, have been really confused and say, you know, I don't understand. I use, you know, I'm, I'm using a free software license, not an open source license. So, and they continue. But it, it doesn't mean what they think it means. Um, as, as, as far as I know, there's no real legal distinction between free software and open source software. We have this problem where our, our terms are awkward. Um, we, we say free software because it, it's free as in freedom, um, but there has been a lot of confusion by using the term free software that it means free as in beer. Um, so um, we have another term, open source, but that's confusing too because saying open doesn't, you know, implies that you can just review the source code. It doesn't mean that you would have the freedom to do anything with it. So in my view, both terms as terms are somewhat inadequate, and using them together is the way I prefer to use it, to say free and open. Um, that way, we get everything, and we know what we're talking about. You just want to be careful, because some people think they're talking about this open source thing, and they really mean software that they have the freedom to modify. And some people might say free software, and they might lose everyone who has only heard of that open source thing. So um, I always like to point it out, just because I think we want to be inclusive. Um, and you know, make sure that everybody knows what we're talking about. We want to make sure that all the important concepts are included as but well. To the extent that you want to draw a distinction between free software and open source software, you might say that a free software license is one that fits the free software definition published by FSF, and you might say that an open source license is one that, um, that meets the requirements of the open source definition promulgated by the open source initiative, but basically um, is just re a reproduction of the Debian free software guidelines. Um, but uh, in fact, I mean, there there is almost no such thing as a license that would be considered a free software license under the free software definition that would not also be an open source license under the open source definition. The Those two organizations are uh, have lists that of licenses they consider to be um, in meeting with their definition. But um, generally speaking, there is broad overlap. Richard Fontana thinks that there's an exception. I can see it in his eyes. No, no I think that there are, there are some licenses that the OSI has, has approved in the past that actually don't meet their definition. Right, yes, yes. And, and, and whether one of these organizations has actually policed their own definition adequately is, uh, you know, uh, is kind of a different question. So one of the things we've recommended is that if you're checking to see whether a license is free and open, look on both lists. And if a license is on both lists, then you probably know that it's free and open. Right. Hey, uh, I yeah. found some source code. It says it's open source. Can I use it? Sure. Sweet. Thanks. <laughs> Next. Um, <No. laughs> just kidding. So, uh, so there, there's a lot of places to look for, um, for the license to some code that you want to use. Um, so if you stumble across some code and it actually just says this code is open source, then, um, then you kind of have a problem because you don't actually know what the license to the code is. Um, and you can't really assume that you can use it. Um, now, more commonly, uh, a, a, a file from a free or open source software project is going to have a license header at the top of the file. And that's going to tell you, in shorthand at least, uh, what the license to the software is. But it's not going to have the actual license in the software, uh, unless maybe it's a very short BSD variant uh, free software license. So it might, be, it might be the case that you can't actually tell from looking at a single file removed from a distribution of source code, even if it has a license header, what the license to the, to the code is. Right. And, um, you know, I think that actually different projects handle their licensing information differently. So um, you want to sort of look at the project, uh, or look at the, the code base as a whole, and sort of see where all the license information, where, you know, where it, it, you know, is there a licensing file that contains an, you know, all of the information, or is it file by file? You really want to actually take a look at what the what the code says um, before you you wind up going ahead and using it. The one big ca caution I would say is that one of the main things that people do is they look on you know various websites and say, ah, okay, this says that this project is under the GPL, but actually that may be the predominant license of the project, or there may be you know, um, BSD style or permissive license of some kind uh, code incorporated, you know, into that project, but that's differently licensed. And the way those things can play out can have implications as to what you can do with it. Right. Yes. So if somebody, yeah, that's a, that's a really good question. Um, and I think allows us to cover useful issues. So um, <laughs> congratulations, your question is accepted. Um, <laughs> so if, if you go to a website and you, and you pull off some snippet somebody's posted, um, 
often you won't see a license for for the snippet, right? Um, so there there are a few operative questions. One is, does the site have a policy that all con all contributors agree that their code is licensed? that their snippets that they post are licensed under some particular license. So you can look in the copyright policy of the site, and it may say something like, you know, at all code posted to this site is available under, um, you know, uh, this modified BSD license or whatever. That's, that's fairly common. Um, you might, you might have to dig deeper in like the terms of service for the site that, you know, and then you'll find like a subclause that'll, that'll tell you, um, some license for the code. In other instances, you're not going to find any reference to the license for the code posted anywhere, and um, and your assumption there has to be that it's that it's copyright all rights reserved and that you don't have any right to use it unless you ask unless you ask permission and and so you know often you'll find a username or something or you can you know get in touch with the whoever posted it over Twitter and just ask permission and that's that's always a good fallback you'll find that a lot of developers if you know if you if their licensing isn't isn't useful to you for one way or for one reason or another and you ask hey, can I get this under a different license, you might well get permission to do it. Um, one other uh, sort of sub-point here is that um, it's possible for a snippet to be so short as to not actually be copyrightable. Um, I wouldn't know. recommend that, um, that assumption, though. I, I wouldn't the, recommend, uh, yes, undertaking that analysis. Because yourself. Aaron here, when he was an intern <laughs> at the Software Freedom Law Center many years ago, helped us write a memo on copyrightability, which may be worth checking out if you're interested in this issue, which sort of says that the threshold for creativity contained in a kind of expression that is copyrightable is quite low. So, and you can really pack in some creativity into a tiny, tiny section of code. Yes. So to be on the safe side, which, you know, as lawyers, we always got to recommend that. You want to <laughs> you wanna just make sure you have permission. If it's a snippet that someone's published on a blog, it's probably because they're excited about it and they want you to use it. They're fixing some problem and they want you to. So, you know, just, just ask. Sometimes you can even just post in the comments and yeah. people will say yes. Another question. Well, this what, is why asking is a good idea. What if you modify the snippet? Well, uh, so um, the the issue there is that if you modify a copyrighted work, um, then typically what you've done is create a derivative work of the original copyrighted work. So you may, if you had a if you had a permission to create that derivative work, then you'll have a copyright in your derivative work and anything original you added to it. But the underlying copyright of the original author will still be there. And, and without any permission from them, you can't use it at all, let alone your modified version. Yeah. So if if you go and yes, if if you go and make a modified uh, or a derivative work of something somebody else created, um, and you didn't get permission for that, you actually don't have a valid copyright in what you've made because you didn't have permission to create the derivative work. And there's a case about a rocky screenplay <laughs> that um, would be interesting if you're interested in exploring that issue. Yeah. Well, then to that end, you know, who's got the copyright on zero and one? Um, uh, Jesus. <laughs> um, <laughs> well, there is, there is a requirement for creative expression for a copyright, and copyright doesn't, maybe unlike patent, which we'll get to in a little bit, doesn't cover ideas. Um, so it's basically what's covered, what, what makes something copyrightable is that it's creative expression. Yeah, so so it requires you to string together some zeros and ones in a in a minimally original way for you to have a copyright, and you couldn't get the copyright on the zero. And that's a good question too, because people seem to think that copyright does all these things that it doesn't actually do. Sure. Yeah, um, fair use does it does come into play. Um, fair use, unfor you know, I I love fair use. I think there should be more of it. Um, <laughs> uh, unfortunately, unfortunately, it's it's um, it's a rather uh, um, thin protection for uh, for most people because yeah, because you can only really assert it in defense of uh, an, an infringement claim. It's it's only a defense. It's not you know there's no such thing as active fair use. So. You know, and it, some of the areas of fair use don't really don't necessarily apply that well to software, um, like the idea of parity um, or <laughs> piratical software. I would like to see some. <laughs> but sure to the extent could. that that code is used for um, for education, for discussion, for news even, yeah. or criticism, you could see fair use coming into it. 
Um, there, there's some element of interoperability yeah. um, included in fair use, but um, right. but it's it is pretty narrow. It's not as expansive in this context as it might otherwise be. And one one issue with fair use, one one of the um, one of the considerations that goes into a determination of whether something is fair use is how much you used, um, and also whether you know essentially the extent to which your your use is is commercial or competitive, um, and and so you know if you're using very little then it's it's more likely to be fair use you know if you're using it again for educational purposes for non for exclusively nonprofit pur purposes it's more likely to be fair use but yeah fair use is um, unfortunately a, a difficult thing to rest on because it you know I think part of what we're dancing around here is that copyright and we didn't talk about this before is something we would talk about but um, but copyright doesn't really apply that well to software. Like software is in this really interesting situation where it's covered by all these areas um, like copyright, like patent, like trade secrets, um, and trademark. And all of those bodies of law were established prior to software. And so software is kind of shoehorned in there, and now there's a lot of case law as to how it applies, and there have been amendments to the statutes and everything like that. But the fact that copyright applies for so long to software, which you know usually is relevant in a shorter period of time, you know I think if you were to write a body of law that were to really just address software, you would come up with something really different than what we wind up having with copyright because it came over from yeah. other areas. As a clue to to uh, how how uncomfortable a fit copyright is with computer software, um, when when there was when there was some question, there was debate um, about what you know in like national lawmaking bodies about whether. Uh, software should be copyrightable. Um, it was basically ultimately determined that well, yeah, I guess this is a literary work, so we'll we'll fit it in copyright there. Um, which I you know it, I know people like to refer to their their code as poetry sometimes, but uh, it's it's just usually not. Uh, yeah. Oh, you were going to talk about the Brink Convention, weren't you? Um, yeah. So uh, the um, our copyright laws or international copyright law. Um, is somewhat unique in that it's it's very well harmonized on on I mean by well I mean thoroughly I don't necessarily mean <laughs> they got it right but um, on basic issues um, most most uh, countries of note agree and have treaties that uh, essentially say you know these these rules apply the first copyright treaty um, was the Berne Convention that. It was it was first enacted I think in the 1880s, um, and it essentially it was it was uh, many European countries agreed that um, that foreign authors would have the same rights in uh, any given country as as local authors. Um, and, and as Aaron reminded me, that's why the United States dropped the requirement to uh, yes the Berne Convention to have requires. the notice of. Copyright. Exactly. The Berne Convention says there can be no formalities for protection of copyright. So, um, so there there are very few international issues that come up very often. Um, the international issues that we see the most often are things like um, export restrictions. Um, you you know there there are rules at the State Department about I guess it's the Commerce Department um, about exporting things to Iran, for example, or Cuba. Um, and um, and there are there are well, exceptions and there are you know but um, it does come up in the copyright context too um, and this is some of the stuff that Richard addressed in his talk before us that um, that in issues of potentially joint copyright or issues of, of moral right there are disconnects between the laws of different countries and one of the things that the GPLv3 process did just to jump around a little bit um, is that it it consulted lawyers in different uh, countries so that you could draft language that addressed all these issues a little bit better. Um, but I think that you know it's hard to anticipate what kind of uh, laws will, will, will come up in different places. And we actually, you know, we of course are speaking from a US perspective because we're both US lawyers, but we're aware of issues in other places because the free and open source software world is a completely international place. Yes, but it comes up probably less frequently than you might think. Why are there so many free software licenses? Why are there so many lawyers? Why are there so, why are there so many lawyers? Yes, uh, I don't know. Um, 
Yeah, it's amazing to me that, um, so, so basically lawyers have this instinct of, um, and, and I do this too, every time I'm given something to read, I take out a pen and I sit down to read it. Like I, you know, it's, it's, it's just this, this instinct that you want to mark things up. And lawyers, when they're given a license, sometimes they say, oh, you know what would be neat? Especially lawyers that are new to free and open source software, they're like, you know what would be neat? We need if we provided for this or for that without realizing that there's like a whole body of, of licenses. This, I think, used to be more of a problem than it is now. Um, but for a while, uh, it, it seems like, and maybe you could ask Bradley about that later, but it seemed like there, <laughs> there were licenses popping up all over the place to cover each thing. And we've seen licenses that come up now where people who either aren't that familiar with free and open source software or haven't really done their research try to impose all sorts of of, of little, you know, additional clauses into these licenses, into licenses either that exist or write new licenses that are just not compatible at all with other licenses. Or, or make the, the license itself no longer a free software license. Right. We've seen a lot of licenses that come up where people are writing in things like, the things that restrict the field of use, like uh, do good provisions or something like that, where people yeah. want to be an arbiter of what the software could be used for, whether it can only be used in the public good or it can only be used for this or that. But the truth is that if it can't be used for anything, then it's not truly free. Right. Um, so, yeah, um, not invented here syndrome. It strikes lawyers at least as often as it strikes free software developers. So um, that's that's one of the big reasons why there are so many licenses. Um, part of the reason is, is that, you know, as, when free software was growing up, there was just there was a lot of, um, you know, not very many people understood uh, free software licensing. They were sort of there was there was a lot of community dialogue, sometimes in the form of license writing, um, trying to sort of sort these issues out and get it right. Um, but these days, there's almost no excuse for writing a new free software license. Um, Please tell lawyers that if you <laughs> if you encounter a lawyer and they're fascinated by this new free and open source software thing they haven't heard about before, just Please tell them not to write a new license. Right. Say a lawyer told you to tell them not to write a new license. Yeah. So there, you know, there's there there is a stable of of commonly used licenses out there. Um, on the copy left end, there's the GPL. Um, uh, GPL v3 is it's I recommend it. It's it's uh, I think mm -hmm. gaining a lot of traction now in its what sixth year of existence, something like that. If you feel like yeah. you must write a new software license. Please do so with a public review process. Yes, um, yes. Like the GPLv3 process. So just something that publishes the, the license so that everybody can comment on it. And that's one of the things that's different about licenses that are being written now as opposed to some of the older licenses is that there's an opportunity for lawyers from different walks to, um, to comment on it and think about it, for developers to think about it. And so it results in a much better license. Yeah. What Karen means is put up a comment, comment area so that uh, Fontana and, and Bradley over here control you. <laughs> It, it'll work out really well for you. You'll really enjoy. You'll really enjoy yourself. Um, but yes, there there are licenses for different purposes. There are highly permissive licenses. There are permissive licenses with with um, patent provisions that that afford some sort of uh, patent insulation from from contributors to your project. There are weak copyleft licenses like the LGPL that are sort of designed for use with components that sh that you want themselves to remain free, but you want to allow the combination with uh, software under other licenses, including proprietary licenses. And then there are full copyleft licenses um, if, you, if you're trying to keep the software free forever. And, um, and, and there are basically like a couple of, of, of you know, top build uh, licenses for each of those categories and it's best to stick with those. Yeah, the OSI actually maintains like a most popular license list, which isn't the only thing I would look at, but um, it's interesting, interesting to see which licenses are the most commonly used, and those tend to hit most of the main areas of what we need. Like, yeah. you know, we probably need like 10 licenses or maybe 12 licenses to get everything done that we want us to, but we don't need the hundreds of licenses that are out there. No, no. That's a great question. Is that our next question? Um, I don't think that's even, no. No. Um, so uh, we were going to talk about enforcement, um, but this this question is is subtly different from that. Um, there there is a there's a doctrine under trademark law um, that that essentially says that you know if if you if you are too liberal too liberal in licensing your trademark, or if your trademark is being used uh, in a way that is um, sort of uh, um, 
Help me out here. <laughs> uh, so basically, <laughs> if you don't defend your trademark, you might lose it. Basically, yeah. the whole point about behind trademark is that you want to, which we will get to, is that you know you you need to be sure that you defend your mark because you're maintaining a source of identity. But copyright law is a little bit different. And with copyright, you just get the so trademark you get by using. And we'll get to that. But copyright you get for having created it. Right. So you don't you don't lose your copyright protection because you haven't enforced on it. On the other hand, if you knew that someone was violating your license and you didn't do anything about it, they might have a defense, like a, a, an estoppel defense. So they may be able to say, but your honor, this guy knew that I was using his work and he didn't say anything to me about it. I took that as permission. Clearly he knew he didn't tell me. It's not fair for you to come after me now and say that I, you know, I owe you money right. or I should be able to use it. Yeah. Um, but it's only a defense. So a defense could be as simple as just sending a letter saying, You have to. You have to act. If you're if you're trying to prevent against estoppel, you have to actively pursue the matter. Um, but yes, yeah, sending a sending a letter is a is a good start. Yeah. But but if you know if you've given no indication that the use is okay, um, you know I it's uh, I I don't think that that yeah. estoppel is not that easy to plead. Yeah. You can say so. in a, in a letter. You can say. You know, I know that you know you're using this without my permission. I don't have the resources to pursue it now, but um, you should cease immediate use. And you know, whenever I can pursue it, I will. But going back to the trademark question, the the subtlety that I was uh, attempting and failing to introduce here, uh, Karen's right that that you know, in in shorthand, the rule is if you don't defend it, you could lose it. Um, the fact is, it's it's really uncommon for uh, a trademark to be abandoned because you you didn't. You didn't fight to to prevent certain uses, and and this idea of abandonment that I have to defend it or I'll lose it um, is is really heavily abused um, by people who are aggressive with their trademarks. Largely companies, right? Um, who you know who who just want to be really aggressive with their marks. Yeah, I don't I don't mind naming Monster Cable as as one of the biggest offenders that I've ever heard of. I I recall seeing that they had sued or threatened a miniature golf course. Um, Called something like Monster Mini Golf um, for for the trademark, and and the fact is, if you make uh, if you make audio video cables, um, you don't really have a claim over the trademark as it applies to mini golf. Um, yeah. So, you, you know, on the I, other hand, if you don't stop people from using the mark, using your trademark and abusing it, you might find that you don't have the ability to defend it anymore because your mark is so diluted, it's so watered down that you don't have any defense. Yes. Um, so can I just put my code in the public domain? Um, maybe, kind of, but sort of. Maybe not that great <laughs> of an idea. Um, so yeah, a lot of people, uh, a lot, particularly people who are drawn to permissive licensing, like I don't, you know, I, I want my code to be open source. I don't, you know, I, I don't care what people do with it. You know, it's great. Do whatever. I want you to be. Um, we want you to to have the right to make proprietary software, or whatever. I just want to put my code in the public domain. A lot of people think that, um, and I understand the impulse. Um, the problem is that the concept of the uh, public domain is fraught. Um, <laughs> it just doesn't match. Like uh, public domain is a concept that in the United States comes from the copyright expiring on um, on copyrighted material. So if you had a copyright, it only lasted a certain period of time, and then after that, it fell into the public domain. Now, of course, there are also things that are just not copyrightable, which are automatically in the public domain. You know, most of well, they most don't need to be in the public domain because in, well, you know, they were never we copyrighted. So, yeah. but. Um, you know, and, and the public domain was also the public domain also used to be you know things the copyrights that that weren't renewed would fall into the public domain, et cetera, et cetera. But we have a sort of we have a, an idea of the public domain here that doesn't necessarily translate across jurisdictions, um, and and even the even the act of putting something in the public domain in the United States um, is is not something that's governed by the copyright statute, but it was something that sort of grew up through. Judge-made laws, so. and it's copyright abandonment rather right. than putting something in the public domain. Instead, you're you can abandon your copyright. Right. So you you essentially disclaim ownership. If you make a clear statement of disclaimer, then then you know then you can essentially put something in the public domain. But the concept of putting something in the public domain doesn't even exist here as such. And in other countries, it can be even more difficult because um, mostly because of a con the concept of moral rights which is essentially that artists or authors have uh, certain inalienable rights in, in their copyrighted work. Um, and you know one of those rights might be attribution. 
um, that whenever the work is used, the author has a right to have it attributed to them, um, and they cannot sign away that right. Another another example of a moral right is um, the, uh, I believe in some places it's a, it's referred to as something like the right against mutilation, but essentially when somebody takes a work and uses it in a way that you wouldn't have uh, wanted or that, you, that reflects badly on the author, um, you can stop that use. So because these rights are inalienable in some places, there's really no way to disclaim all right in a copyrighted work in those places. Now Creative Commons did a lot of work on this and did a lot of research as to how this impacts different places and they came up with a license called CC0. Not a license, a waiver. A waiver license. It's a waiver and a license. It is a waiver and a license. Yeah, um, so if you do want to put your work in the so-called public domain, um, it's a good idea to just use CC0 and what that does is it says I'm abandoning my copyright, I waive, you know, I, I, I waive all of my rights to this and then it says to the extent that I can't, I'm going to license it. And uh, so, yes, um, to the extent that anything works, CC0 works, um, but uh, there, um, you know, it, Richard Fontana really likes it. I love CC0. <laughs> he loves CC0. <laughs> he, he takes every opportunity to say he loves CC0. Um, but it's, it's a relatively young license and um, it doesn't have a patent license. Yes, that is, that is a flaw. So there's... Uh, wow. You know, to the extent that you're trying to to pass on some patent security to your users, CC0 um, is not a way to do that, nor are very permissive BSD variants. Yeah, uh, we should keep moving because we, we are keep moving. We are moving behind. Um, so yes, now we're on enforcement. Um, so you have some GPL code, <laughs> and some company is putting it in their software, and they're not distributing the source. What should you do? You should tell should them. Should I sue them? <laughs> um, well, I was going to say you should tell yes. them to stop, but then I regretted that, and I said you should tell them to start, which is to say you should tell them to to um, to start making their code available. So there are a lot of confusions here about what obligations there are under the GPL to provide code. So the first thing you should do is to check and make sure that there actually is a violation. Um, so if you you know if you think that there's um, some GPL software in a, in a device that's been distributed and there's no source code on that company's website, that doesn't necessarily mean that the company is in violation because uh, the GPL requires that, and I'm talking about V2 primarily, I guess, but V3, um, so, so requires that if you, uh, that you must provide the source code to the, to the person you're distributing it to. So there may, be, um, there may be source code in the package that's being delivered or it also is acceptable to provide an offer for source in along packaged alongside and and the license itself, so you may actually have an offer for source code somewhere in your box if you've gotten something that has GPL software. So you got to check the manual, you got to check the device itself because sometimes it's on files that are buried or somewhere in in the device. Um, it's definitely worth taking a look. Um, and yeah. then, um, yeah, a common refrain we hear is. Um, you know, uh, this company is using GPL software, but they're not publishing the source code. And the idea that the source code needs to be published and or made available to the public um, is is generally a uh, a mischaracterization of the GPL. It says you have to give source code to the to the, the people who've received the software. So you know, if you've if you've distributed them a you know software on a CD, then you have to either make an offer for them to receive the software the same way or you have to provide the source code the same way. Um, I think best practice is to do both. Like make, make it known to someone who's receiving the software that there is GPL code on the device and that they can, get, they can either get the code along with it or along with the software binary um, or give them a place where they can get it and also publish it on a website. Um, if it's just on a website, it may not actually satisfy the obligations of the license. Yeah. But the misunderstandings go uh, both ways, too. I've actually heard um, the defense from a company who was uh, apparently violating the GPL um, that, no, 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 we made the offer. Yes, but you didn't give source code to anybody who asked for it. Well, yeah, but we made an offer. See, we have to either provide source code or make an offer for source code, and we made an offer. But they were actually they were actually making the argument that having made the offer, they never had to actually give source code to anybody. That's not true. Yes, yes, we we once had 
uh, a negotiation with someone, I'll call it a negotiation, who, who said, um, we said to them, well, listen, if you don't have a license, then what gives you the right to distribute? He was like, well, what gives me the right not to distribute? And that, <laughs> I had to think about that for a while. <laughs> Uh, so 11 a.m. tomorrow, there Bradley Kuhn will be giving a talk. He's he's the world's foremost uh, GPL enforcer. Uh, he'll be giving a talk on GPL enforcement. Um, what room? This room. This room. So you know, different bat time, same bat place. That's a great question. Uh, that well, depends. Yeah, they don't <laughs> need to give it to you if you're not the person that they distributed the binary to. On the other oh, hand, um, so yes. Uh, I think I'm maybe answering a little bit differently than so. Okay. Um, the uh, the language about the offer for source and companies love to give an offer for source because they think it's cheaper. You just put a piece of paper in your you know you put one page in your manual that's an offer for source. I don't have to put a CD in every box, but um, that's the offer for source is a little bit trickier than that mm -hmm. uh, in two ways. First, the offer for source um, requirement is that you must make the offer for three years um, after your last distribution of the product. So your obligation to provide source code is extended by your relying on the offer for source option. And you must provide it to anyone who asks, not, not just the person who you sold it to. Yeah, anyone anyone, anyone in possession of the offer. Right. So, so if you make an offer for source, then that customer can hand oh, it to okay. somebody else and uh, that somebody else can then, you know, and they can publish it on the internet, and then you can be in possession of that offer and request the source code. Now, there may be some limits to that, um, but uh, the fact is it makes it a lot easier for anybody to request the source code if you're making an offer. Yeah, that's a, that's a big problem. The, mm -hmm. they're, they're often, the, the, the offer for source is often written out of the support script, um, and it can be hard to make good on the offer. Um, I mean, you know... How are you yeah, I mean, the, the offer does have to work, um, <laughs> right? I mean, uh, sometimes, unfortunately, the answer is to call us um, mm -hmm. or, or you know, call Bradley or report it on GPLviolations.org or make it public. Um, you know, some sometimes companies will just not listen or it won't get routed to the right place to somebody who actually knows yeah, about this Yeah, sometimes sending a letter by career to address to general counsel or head legal um, contact will get you there. But there should be contact information, and it should work. That's the biggest it depends in the entire world or entire area of free software law. I mean, so you know, the 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 basic answer is if you create a derivative work of a GPL program uh, or library or whatever, then that entire derivative work must be licensed under the GPL in order for you to be in com in compliance with the GPL. Now, what a derivative work is is something that's governed by copyright law. Um, and uh, are there test cases in this area? Not really. Um, there, there, you will not find a case of somebody using somebody else's library, dynamically linking it to their proprietary code, and, and the court determining whether that creates a derivative work. Um, so uh, the FSF has always taken the position that um, that linking, whether static or dynamic linking, in the context of C, um, creates a derivative work. But you know, it, I think any conservative lawyer would come to that conclusion. Right, but but the fact is, it's governed by. Right, yeah, and I mean the and and the GPL tries to make it clear that if you're just putting two programs on the same disk, you know, mere aggregation, you're not creating a derivative work. Um, and and so so there are clear cases, and then there are on one side there are clear cases on the other side, and then there's a lot in between that you know it, it really depends on the facts of the case. Um, you know, one good rule of thumb is don't do something that the people who actually wrote the software don't want you to do. Um, and you know that's another it's another case where you might want to just reach out to the developers and say, listen, is this cool? Yeah, I mean, I think that's also the you know the moral of the story behind this question, which is that you know your first mode of action should be to make sure if there really is a violation, um, check everything, and then you know contact the company in a friendly way or whoever is distributing it, see if 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 it's a mistake, an oversight, if they know, if they've gotten their software from somebody upstream. Um, you know, there are so many facts involved in this that I think our recommendation is that is that it's worth pursuing every option before even thinking about suing. Yes. Yeah. Don't you have standing 
right, this is the, oh. the question is, it's my, it's my software, so I can see on it. Yeah, that, it does depend on the jurisdiction. Yes. There have been interesting experiments outside of the U.S. about, you know, using uh, essentially consumer protection laws, I think, to, to, as a hook to, you know, require compliance with the GPL. Never seen that done here. I, I'm dubious as to whether it would work, but um, generally speaking in the U.S., you have to be a copyright holder to have standing to bring an infringement action. And in order to sue, you'll, you need to have your copyright registered. So we said yes. before that you didn't need to register your copyright in order to have copyright, but if you want to take it to court, that's a different story. But you can register later. Right. It's not something to freak out about now. <laughs> <laughs> right. uh, registration of a copyright only costs about 35 or $45, so it's not prohibitively, prohibitively expensive. It's a lot more expensive to register a trademark. Um, yeah. It is, it is. So um, you only have access to uh, a couple of copyright remedies if you've registered um, prior to the infringement happening. So one of them is statutory damages. Um, if you don't have, so statutory damages essentially say um, there is a minimum amount that a court has to, has to provide um, if they find infringement. Um, and the number, you know, the minimum number is low. The maximum number in the range is hot, is is higher, you know. Um, and I, I don't remember the exact numbers right now. Right? What's that? Thirty uh, and one fifty for willful. Well, so that's that. Yes, for willful damages, it's from thirty thousand dollars to one hundred fifty thousand dollars. Or you're saying those are the maximums? Yeah, seven hundred fifty dollars to like one hundred fifty thousand dollars. So, right, the court has a lot of discretion. Um, to pick within that range of statutory damages. But you can't get this fixed damages calculus, this fixed minimum, um, unless, unless you've registered. You can get actual damages or, um, or the ill-gotten profits of the infringer, whether or not you registered prior to the infringement. The problem is that proving actual damages in a, in a copyright infringement situation is very difficult because essentially you have to say, we lost this much money because they were using our software in this way. Um, and if you're if you're a nonprofit free software development project, you know you don't lose money. Your actual damages are are you know lost lines of code or or you know a damage to your community, et cetera. And it's it's a lot harder to monet you know to to put in monetary terms. Yeah. I mean, a lot of times the you know there's a company that's deployed a product and and you hear about it because the product is on shelves or being sold or you know whatever so you can you know it's it's a longer process than it, it may seem they're not going to you know they're not necessarily going to pull the product the moment that they realize that there's a violation so there's there's often time um, just to give the other side of this the we say we don't want to sue unless you know we we want to do everything we can to avoid suing but sometimes suing might be necessary um, one of the arguments that i've heard that is very compelling is that if there's never any lawsuit on, um, you know, on copylefted code, then the copyleft license is merely as good as a permissive license. If there are no consequences to violating, you may as well not even use copyleft. So, you know, there have to be teeth to the, to the license, and, you know, usually you can get a good result just by, you know, having, having friendly contact, and sometimes having friendly contact by lawyers, you know, and then you just sort of, Escalate as need be. We want to avoid lawsuits, but sometimes they're necessary. Yes, agreed. Um, how, are we in time? Are we out of time? Are we? We are a tad over. We started late. Oh, we're ten over, but oh. we started should we ten stop? late. Um, <laughs> okay, so we should, we have, we should stop. It's a break now, so nobody's needing the room. Is that right? Or? I think he wants us to stop. Okay. I can see it in his eyes. Great. Well, that's a good um, place to stop. <laughs> Thank you, everybody, for listening to <laughs> us. We'll be here if you want to ask us some more questions just for yeah. a few more minutes. We're around. Um, we'll, we'll make them available. We, there is a way for us to do that. I was too lazy to make them um, time to actually make them available before the talk. But So um, become a friend of GNOME and uh, help make a donation to Software Freedom Law Center. The nonprofit side of free software needs your help. Pretty please. <laughs> yeah. Thank Thanks, you. Thanks, everybody.
I was pretty good during your talk. I only interrupted you once. Which... Well, you interrupted me once to when not letting me finish a sentiment where you were correcting me, and if you would let me finish, oh, did you I do would that? have. Yeah, I think so because you said um, because I was saying that um, companies, for example, are not required to give offers to anyone other oh, right, than I their that. yeah anyone other than their um, their customers or whoever they choose. Um, but they have to give source code if someone is in possession of the offer. But I didn't get to the but part, and you're like, that is incorrect. <laughs> well, the yeah, offers for source are sort of my my thing, you know. Yeah, but sorry. No, no, it's okay. But the other time I interrupted you was to uh, get you guys to plug my talk, which was happening the following day ah, in I that see. context, and uh, and Aaron did so, and we're actually I did get audio of that. And we're going to have that in a future episode. I don't know if it'll be the next episode or not. We also got Richard Fontana's talk, which we're hoping to use. He hasn't given us approval yet. He wants to hear it first. Uh, I hope he will. What was really weird was that they had put our they put our introductory talk after his talk. Right, and we're ordering it correctly which here. Which is so strange because his talk was quite advanced. Oh yes, and there were people who were at his talk who were at ours asking really basic questions that they couldn't have possibly have followed some of the nuances of the copyright assignment discussion. Yeah, it was really, really poor scheduling on O'Reilly's part. See, I get to give O'Reilly a hard time in this episode when uh-huh. we're such good credit. It was poor scheduling. It Really, they should have put Kaz and, and Copies of Copies talk first, then have Richard Fontana's talk. I don't know if we'll be able to do Richard Fontana's talk. This will give an opportunity to, uh, for folks to ping him on Identica and hope that he'll let us. I, he, I did promise him I'd let him hear the audio first, uh, as we always but do before. even if we don't include it, we'll probably talk about it a little bit in the context of talking about the panel at Desktop Summit. Yeah, that's true, which has already happened by folks, time folks are hearing. It hasn't happened for us because we're in the future and now we have to go back in the past. I love time travel. And so we haven't actually had the de- – we can't talk about it now because we, have, we haven't had it as we say this. But we're at the desktop summit when they hear this, but the panel will have already finished. Uh, so I hope folks enjoyed uh, this particular talk uh, by Aaron and Karen. And hopefully next time will we'll, next time will either be uh, Richard Fontana's talk or my talk uh, would, and uh, about you. Or maybe post. something else entirely. You have to stay on your toes. No, I think, I think, <laughs> I think we'll probably stick with using all the audio from the talks because uh, it, it gets like we did this with Collab Summit, and by the time we it got gets to the last stale. one, well, no, I don't think it gets stale. It was just I like to get them out uh, show after show and not hold them because by the time they get out, it's months and months after the show anyway because we only do every two weeks so i want to make sure that we get them out in order and and reasonably timely after the show okay so enjoy uh, uh this i hope you enjoyed this talk and look forward to another one next week or next episode see i did your thing you made me do it i, I always like to say see you next time next there's time. no seeing and who knows what time yeah. means but uh, but see you next time yeah well you'll enjoy uh, say next. bye okay <laughs> and Freedom is produced by Dan Lynch of HalfBakedMedia.com. Thanks to Mike Tarantino for our theme music. Freedom and Freedom is licensed under the Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 3.0 Unported License. Please provide any feedback to Ogcast at faif.us. You know, we're recording this on a Sunday, and there's a bar in Brooklyn called The Way Station, which shows Doctor Who episodes on Sundays. I don't know why I'm giving The Way Station a plug, even though I really love that bar. Just okay. that we could go right now um, to a bar that has a TARDIS in it. Well, okay. so And drink a drink called But you're not TARDIS. supposed to cross your own timeline. There's all that <laughs> stuff. So. <laughs>